0: The following audio is from Jacobswell Church. For more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Well, I think uh, Mother's Day has a very fairly standard procedure to it, doesn't it? Uh, the husband, the kids cook mom meals, or if she wants a meal that she likes, they'll take her out for a meal, right? Mom gets to eat food that she that she enjoys and she doesn't have to clean up after it. Uh, moms maybe go out on a nice day for a walk or a bike ride. They get cards and, and gifts, right? How many how many of you did I just kind of describe your mother's day? Is That it it's fairly standard protocol, right? What's so funny? I, I said it I set the bar too high. Whoops. Sorry about that. If you'd like to come up and repent publicly, you can't. I mean, it's, I won't tell you who cooked breakfast in my house. It wasn't the preacher. Anyways, you know, I think what every mother wants for, for Mother's Day can be summed up in one word, harmony. Harmony. They want, they want their kids to come together. They want their family to come together. And they want to enjoy one another. And their hope in their prayer is that for two hours, they cannot fight, right? For two hours, they can actually get along with one another. And if you go much past two or three hours, you walk away with more prayer requests and praises, right? You're like, there's something really messed up with my family. See, Mother's Day is such a great day. But for so many of us, it reminds us of the brokenness of our community, of the community of our family. Maybe you have lost a child, and this is a day that reminds you of that. Maybe you have a child that is estranged from you. Maybe you have lost your mother who you dearly loved. Maybe your mother was a wicked mother that didn't care for you or love you. And this day, although it is glorious and good to enjoy and celebrate mothers, it is also a reminder that we live in a society, in a community that is broken, broken. Even in my own house this morning, the kids came into bed and they gave mom cards and cuddles and happy Mother's Day. And it wasn't too long later until I hear Trish downstairs saying, get off the iPad, don't cry about this, right? It doesn't take long to realize that the community is broken. Today, Paul is going to show us That God is creating a new community, a redeemed community, a renewed community. That ideal community that all of us long for, not only on Mother's Day, but every day of the year. If you would please open up to Colossians chapter 3. I believe it's page 984 in the Red Bible and page 1458 in the Children's Bible. Paul is going to lay out for us what it looks like as a church to be a renewed community. Colossians 3, we'll actually start in verse 9, overlap a little bit with last week, and then we'll read through 17. Colossians 3, verse 9. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Lord God, as, as I read through this passage, I just think, boy, wouldn't Mother's Day be great if all these things came true today? If there was peace, if there was grace given to one another. If there was humility and love. Lord, it it doesn't take long for us to realize that our communities are broken, God, that, that it's filled with broken people like us. And so we come today desperate for you to show us. How we might gain harmony in this community here at Jacob's Well and beyond. Lead us this morning, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Last week, we talked about repentance and how repentance is turning away from sin and turning to Christ. And we spent a lot of time last week talking about turning away from sin. Paul pushes, uh, he, he emphasizes the sins of sexual sin and social sin. Today, we move more towards the positive of if we put off sin, what should we put on when we put on Christ? What are the attitudes and the attributes and the behaviors we should put on if we are putting off sin? What we see here is that Paul is setting up for us a new community, a renewed community, a reconciled community. In verse 10, Paul says that we are being renewed in the knowledge after the image of the Creator. This is in the context of him talking about community. And what he is reminding us of is what has happened in creation and in the fall. In creation, Adam and Eve were holy and happy. They enjoyed one another. They were loving. They were caring. They were compassionate towards one another. They were in intimate relationship with God. And then they rebelled against God. And they, they sinned against God, which is called the fall. And this destroyed relationships. It destroyed their relationship with God. If you remember, after they sinned, God came into the garden. And what did they do? They hid. They hid because they were afraid of God now. It affected their marriage. They started blaming one another and blaming God and blaming Satan for their own sin. I mean, sin demolished their family. They had two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain killed Abel. And so what we see from the very beginning is that sin wrecks relationships. I mean, I couldn't imagine what my relationships would be like with my wife, with my kids, with the Lord, if sin did not exist. Wouldn't that be amazing? That'd be like the best day ever. But sin wrecks relationships. Relationships. But our God, who is such a gracious God, a loving God, is reversing the effects of the fall, reversing the effects that the damage has had on relationships. And he is telling us this morning of a new community, a renewed community, as it was created to be. And so, as we look at this, we are going to see certain identifications of the church Identifications of a renewed community. And what we're going to see is that a new community, a renewed community, has a new identity. It has a new harmony. It has a new authority. And it has a new priority. First looks and see that the church is a new community with a new identity. Verse 11, read along with me if you would. Paul says here, talking about the church... There is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave free, but Christ is all and in all. What Paul is reminding us here in this passage is that we have an identity that exceeds every other identity. It's not that these people stopped being Greeks or they stopped being Jews or that they stopped being circumcised or uncircumcised or slave or free. But they had a new identity that covered all other identities. And Paul says Christ is all and in all. What a interesting statement. Paul says Christ is all. Christ is our sufficient, superior, consuming Savior. He is the author and sustainer. And the purpose of all of creation, of the church, of redemption. He is all. He is everything. And he is in all. Now remember, Paul is writing to the church. He's writing to Christians. He's not writing and saying everyone in the whole world has Christ in them. But you as a child of God, in a very unique and beautiful and amazing way, Christ is in you. We are reminded that whether we are a Greek or a Jew, an American or a Mexican, whoever we are, wherever we come from, if you are in Christ, Christ, who is all, is in you. If you are circumcised or not circumcised, baptized or not baptized, if you are in Christ, Christ, who is all, is in you. If you are a slave or free, if you push brooms or if you're CEO, Christ is all. Who is all is in all. And so if you are in Christ, you have a new identity. You are filled by Christ. Filled by Christ himself, who is all. That is your identity. But it doesn't stop there. Your identity continues. Verse 12, Paul refers to Christians as God's chosen ones holy and beloved. This is a short description that we can often skip over. But to be honest, this might be the most important part of this entire passage, understanding who we are. God says we are a chosen people. We are chosen by God himself. We are a holy people. This is actually, it's a noun. It's a plural noun, which means you are the holies. So another way to translate it is you are the saints. But But by being holy, it means that we have been set apart by God, for God, through God. And so we are holy. We are set apart, not for ordinary use, but for special use for God. That is you and that is me and the Lord. That is our identity. We are holy. And finally, we are beloved. This is a perfect verb, if you don't know your grammar too well. A perfect verb is something where it is a completed action with ongoing consequences. And what Paul is reminding us here is that we have been chosen by God to be objects of his love and affection for all eternity. And so this is Paul's description of the church, of the New Testament people of God, that they are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. That's a pretty concise yet thorough description of the church god's chosen ones holy and beloved but what we see as we look throughout scripture is this is doesn't only apply to the people of god today this applies to the people of god throughout all eternity in deuteronomy chapter 7 you can read along with me on the screen behind this is what god says to the people of god israel in the old testament he says for you are a people Holy to the Lord. Do you hear the continuity? Holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people. That the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand, and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Do you see the continuity between the people of God in the Old Testament, and the people of God today? They are a chosen people, a holy people, a beloved people, a people that God has deemed, has chosen to treasure, to set his affections upon. Deuteronomy 7 reminds us that the reason why God has chosen to love us is not because we are great people, is not because he saw something in us and thought, man, that is a people that can really do a lot of good for my name. The reason why God chose us was for one reason. The reason why God chose to love you is because he chose to love you. It is not contingent on you in any way, shape, or form. This is such good news. This means on a good day, God loves you as much as he does on a bad day. God will love you simply because he loves you. Years ago, there was a young mother who was walking across the hills of South Wales, and she was carrying her tiny baby in her arms when she was hit by a blinding blizzard. She never reached her destination, and later her body was found by search and rescue uh, lookers. And as they found her body, they discovered that before she had died, she had taken off her garments, and she had wrapped the baby in these garments, and then she had huddled over this child. And so as they peeled off this frozen woman, they found this this linen-wrapped child, and they unwrapped the clothing By God's grace, the baby was still alive. Now, I know this may seem like a far-fetched story, but this child actually grew up to be the prime minister of Great Britain. And you look at that story and you wonder, what causes a mother to love her child this much? You know, my guess is, is that many of you mothers here today would do absolutely the same thing, without hesitation. And the question is, why do you love your child so much? Do you love your child because they are so moral? Do you love your child because they are so grateful and thankful all the days of the year? Do you love your child because they are so handsome? Do you love your child because they never whine and never complain? No, you love your child for one reason only. Because you love your child. You love your child because your child is yours. And there is nothing they could do that would ever deter your love from them. The God of the universe has chosen, apart from anything that you can do, to love you with an unrelenting, unending love. God loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us that he might win us. We are the joy set before him. We are his beloved you know, in preparing this, I had this thought which breaks my mind. I mean, it, when you go to heaven, if you trust in Christ and you go to heaven, and you're in heaven and you no longer sin, and you worship God alone, and you are perfect, and your, your conduct is perfectly holy, God will not love you more on that day than he loves you today. God is not in love with a future version of you. God is in love with you today. You are His beloved. He cherishes you. He has chosen to set His affections upon you, and there is nothing you can do to deter Him from that. That's the most important point that you will hear today. Until you understand how much God loves you, the rest of this is useless. You are God's beloved. He has given us a new identity. And because of this new identity, this community, this church should have a new harmony. You know, many times uh, throughout your life, you wear different hats, you have different identities, and you dress according to that identity, right? So so when I was growing up, I was a, a baseball umpire, right? And when I would go to umpire, I'd wear an umpire uniform. But I also love to swim. And so when I would go swimming, I'd wear a swimsuit. And I didn't wear a swimsuit when I umpired. That'd be awkward. And I didn't wear an umpire outfit when I went swimming. That would just be wrong, right? And so you dress according to your identity. And Paul says here, remember your identity. That you have been chosen by God. That you are holy. That you are his beloved. Now dress accordingly. Verse 12. Put on then. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Let's just take a minute to go through those. First, he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, compassionate hearts. Compassion is empathy in action. Compassion is caring for someone who is in need. Not simply saying, I will pray for you or I'm sorry that that happened to you. But stepping into their life, into their mess to care for them. It means sacrificing something of yourself to care for them. Whether that be finances or time or whatever it might be. Energy to show compassion towards them. Kindness. We should not only show compassion towards one another, but we should do so with kindness, with a cheerful disposition, right? Nobody likes to be served by a grumbling servant. Okay, this is a burden for you to love me, to care for me, to be compassionate towards me. Nobody wants that. So we are to be compassionate with kindness towards one another, with humility. Humility is having a right understanding of who you are in light of who God is. I don't know about you, but... A lot of times I get confused. A lot of times in my relationship with the Lord, I forget which one of us is God. A lot of times in my relationship with God, I forget who deserves everything and who deserves nothing. A lot of times in my relationship with God, I forget who is perfect and who is sinful and in constant need of grace. In my relationship with God, I often forget who knows everything. And who knows a very limited amount, and in that very limited amount is tainted by sin. Humility is having an accurate understanding of who you are in light of who God is. He goes on and says, meekness. This, is, this was used to describe horses that were wild that would come in and they would, they would, they would bridle them and they would get them under control and tame them. It means to use your giftedness in a way that is kind and compassionate and not dominating. And so maybe you're really good at being a leader. To be meek is to do it in a way that is kind towards others, to love others, to not dominate others. And so he calls us to meekness and finally patience. The ability to restrain your anger, the ability to resist exasperation. It's long-suffering without giving up hope. It's enduring while knowing that God is redeeming all things. Patience. So these are the attitudes that we are to put on because we are now the beloved of God. We are to put on kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. That is the attitudes. Now Paul moves on to the actions. Verse 13, he says, bearing with one another or forbearing with one another. When someone in the church hurts you, or when someone in your family hurts you, you have two options. One option is to forbear, and the other option is to forgive. What's the difference? Well, forbearing is like this. Let's say someone comes along and in the hallway out here. You say, hey, how's it going? And they just walk right past you, right? They snub you, and you're not sure why. Maybe you just recognize in your heart, you say, okay, that person is maybe having a hard day. And so you You don't have to talk to them. You just forgive them because you realize, you know what? This isn't consistent with who they are. Something's up here. And and so you don't have to go address them. You just forgive them in your heart. And then you don't hold it against them. You don't keep score. You don't seek revenge through a bitter attitude or through avoiding them. You just merely forbear it and forgive it in your heart privately. Right? So that's one option. The other option is when someone hurts you so deeply that they are consuming your mind. They're keeping you awake at night. The next day, you're thinking about what happened the day before. And Paul addresses that here. He says, uh, as it continues, he says, And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. And so you see this pattern in which the complaint is expressed verbally. This follows along with what we find in Matthew 18, that if someone has hurt you, you go to them one-on-one. With all of the attitudes that are expressed up in verse 12. With compassion with kindness with humility with meekness and patience you go to that person and share with them how they have hurt you for the purpose of forgiveness and reconciliation some of you here today have a very hard time forgiving other people (laughs) i think all of us here have a very hard time forgiving other people especially people who have hurt us so deeply And yet Paul continues. He knows that this is difficult. And so he tells us that we are to forgive each other. As the Lord hath forgiven you, so also you must forgive. Notice forgiveness is not Paul's recommendation. Forgiveness is not Paul's advice. Forgiveness is a command. We are called to forgive one another. You know, when we went through the Joseph story, we talked about how we should be slow to trust, but quick to forgive. We should forgive as Christ has forgiven us. He has forgiven us when we did not deserve it. He has forgiven us fully, not holding our sin against us. And as God and Christ forgave you, you are called to forgive one another. Paul continues, verse 14, And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. If we're putting on all of these garments of compassion and humility and meekness, the coat that covers it all, the blanket that covers it all, is love. Love unites and motivates all of these virtues. It holds them together. Love is not just another attribute in this line. Love is the attribute that makes all of these other things happen. We are called to put on the likeness of Christ as God's beloved children. January 5th, 2014, just a few more months ago, it was a cold day at Lambeau Field. And uh, I got free tickets to go to that game against the 49ers. Do you remember that game? That game that they couldn't sell out for multiple reasons, but one, because it was forecasted sub-zero temperatures, right? And and they were all predicting this might be the coldest game in NFL history. And then it was cold. I was there. It was cold, but it wasn't the coldest game ever. Well, I actually have a picture. Oh, there it is. This is a picture of me and Corbin. And uh, as you look on, at this, I mean, you can tell that we're bundled up. I had on two hats. I had on four shirts. I had on two coats. I had on three pairs of pants, two socks, and a partridge in a pear tree. I mean, I had it all on, and Corbin was the same. I mean, he was just covered in clothing, and we bound up. And why did we put on all of these clothes? So that when it's cold outside, we could remain warm inside. When it's cold outside, we could remain warm inside. You know, God has called you to put on these attitudes, Put on these actions so that when your wife is cold to you, when your husband is cold to you, when your friends are cold to you, when churchmen and women are cold to you, you remain warm on the inside. Put on these things, put on the image of Christ. He goes on in verse 14. And he says, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. We finally got to the word harmony. In perfect harmony. When we put on these gospel-colored clothes, clothes of compassion and kindness and humility, meekness and patience, as we bear with one another and forgive one another and love one another, it produces something the world is hungry for. It produces Harmony. where is there disharmony in your relationships is it disharmony with your spouse is it disharmony with your family is it disharmony with someone else here in the church is it disharmony with somebody at work or a neighbor hear paul's words Put on these things, put on compassion and kindness, humility and meekness, put on patience, bear with one another, forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. And above all, put on love that there might be harmony. And so we see that we are a new community with a new identity that calls us to a new harmony. And also to a new authority. I need to speed up here a little bit. Paul mentions two authorities in our life. And I guess I want to spend a little bit more time on the first. Because it's one that we don't think of. Verse 15. He says. And let the peace of Christ. Rule in your hearts. There is an authority. That is to be over our hearts. Which is the peace of Christ. Now. Now. Peace has a vertical component and a horizontal component, and the two are directly linked together. First, Christ came to give us peace with God. Scripture tells us that we were enemies of God. But Christ came to make us friends of God, to give us peace with God. And when we have peace with God, we can have peace with one another because we have experienced the unconditional love of God. Because we are his beloved, we can love others. And so he calls us to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. To have its way. To have authority. This, this term rule actually is, is a word for umpire. It was used in, in the Olympics, whether you could be judged as the victor or the loser, right? This is the person who rules over you. And he's saying, let, and let the peace of Christ rule over your heart. Do not be ruled by anger. Do not be ruled by pride. Do not be ruled by selfishness. Be ruled by the peace of Christ. Secondly, we see that there's not only authority of the peace of Christ in our hearts, but there is to be an authority of the word of Christ. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It shouldn't just visit you on Sundays. It should dwell in you. It should inhabit you. And he says it should dwell in us richly. Why? Why? teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. If you want to teach your kids what is wise, what is right, and what is true, you first have to go and know the word of Christ for yourself. There is no greater wisdom. There is no greater joy than to present the word of Christ, not only to our children, but to one another. But the word of Christ has another effect. He goes on, he says, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. When the word of Christ is properly taught, when the word of Christ is properly understood, it always leads to thanksgiving. It always leads to celebration. It always leads to joy. If you read the scriptures and you look at the story of God's redemption and you walk away, you say, this is bad news. You have not understood the scriptures. You need to know that it, it always ends in good news. And Paul says this should lead us to singing. Singing has such great power over us. It is an expression of our hearts. Martin Luther once said, The devil takes flight at the sound of music, just as he does at the words of theology. And for this reason, the prophets always combine theology and music. Throughout the Psalms, this is what you see. They combine theology And music, the teaching of truth, and the chanting of psalms and hymns. You know, Christianity is so unique. Why is it that we sing so many songs on Sunday? Why is it that the early church sang songs? Why in the Garden of Eden did Adam sing a song? We sing because we are overflowing with the joy of God's love for us. You know, there are many loves you can sing about and that are appropriate to sing about, but there is no greater love. Then the love of God in Christ Jesus found in the words of Christ. And it is for that reason that we gather together on Sunday mornings and we sing. Because we are reminded of God's love for us in Christ. So we have a new authority, the peace of Christ to rule over our hearts, the word of Christ to dominate our teaching and to dominate our singing. Finally, we have a new priority. Verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We are to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. That means everything for his honor, everything for his glory. This gives an eternal purpose to everything you do, whether you are at work or at play. Do it for the name of the Lord Jesus jesus christ whether you are eating or sleeping do it for the name of the lord jesus christ whether you are whether you are eating or drinking do it for the name of the lord jesus christ do it all for his honor and all for his glory and then paul says giving thanks to god the father through him You know, throughout this passage, in the last three verses, three times Paul has commanded us to give thanks. Verse 15, he says, be thankful. Verse 16, he says, "Uh, sing with thankfulness in our hearts. Verse 17, he says, in everything, give thanks. It's so important for us to give thanks, to give thanks for our mothers, to give thanks for our fathers, to give thanks for the things God has given to us and the things that God hasn't given to us. We give thanks because it protects our heart. We're reminded not only of the gifts, but the giver of the gifts when we give thanks. And we're reminded that God is the giver of all good things. And it protects our hearts from hatred, from anger, from bitterness, because it is filled with gratitude. Let me end with this. As we've gone through this list of attributes and actions that God has called us to put on, My guess is there are some areas that you go, you know what, God has done a great work in my life and and that is going pretty well. Praise God. But my guess is there are other attributes or other things that you see here that you say, you know what, I got a long way to go. How could this possibly change in my heart? I am so angry all the time. It makes me so ugly. How could God ever possibly change this? Well, I think it actually the answer is in kind of a technical part of this passage. If you look in verse ten, Paul says, You have put on the new self. In other words, it's already done, it's already completed. When you when you came to faith in Christ, you put on Christ and you put on the new self. But then in verse twelve, he says, put on then. Da, 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 da. W- what does he mean? If we already put on Christ, how can we? Put on something else. One of my daughter's favorite stories is the story of Cinderella. I'm guessing a few of you have read that story here. And in the story of Cinderella, you know the story. The prince is having this great ball, right? And he's having this ball because he wants to find his bride. And so Cinderella pleads if she can go to the ball. And the wicked stepmother says, as long as you finish the chores, right? And then she has her doing all these chores that she did yesterday so she can't go to the ball well, finally, Cinderella wraps up and, and magically the mice create this dress for her. And she comes downstairs and she's ready to go. And the wicked stepsisters grab the dress because it, 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 there were pieces that they had thrown away and, and tears it apart. And so there Cinderella is sitting depleted. She doesn't have a dress to go to the ball. And then the fairy godmother comes in and she puts off Cinderella's rags and she puts on this glorious dress. Cinderella goes to the ball. She woos and wins the prince's heart. But she has to get back before midnight, right? Because her beautiful dress will turn back into slave clothes. So sure enough, she sprints off. She goes and she's, she's going away and, and the carriage turns into a, a pumpkin and her beautiful dress turns into slave clothes. And she goes back slaving for her wicked stepmother. Until they discovered her identity. Do you remember what happened? The man, the jester, whatever. Probably not a jester. I don't know who it would be, but he, what is it? The Chamberlain. Chamberlain, like the garage door opener. All right, the Chamberlain. (laughs) The Chamberlain comes with this glass slipper. He is trying to find that woman. And tries it on all the other sisters, and they try to cram their foot in. And finally, Cinderella comes and she tries it on. And her identity has been exposed. She is the prince's beloved, she is the one that he cherishes. And then in the last page of the book, she is wearing this glorious wedding dress, one that she could never afford, but she has been given it because of her identity, because she is the beloved of the prince. You know, the Old Testament is full of beautiful passages. One of the ones I love the most is Isaiah 61.10. And it says this, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. If you trust in Christ as your Savior, your identity is this. You are the beloved bride of Christ. This is your identity. He has purchased a wardrobe for you. And now he is calling you to put it on. Let's pray. Lord God, this is a love that is beyond comprehension. That you would take rebellious, hard-hearted people and make them objects of your affection, of your unrelenting love. It is beyond our comprehension that you would love us as much today as you ever will for the rest of eternity. Lord God, let us remember our identity, that we are chosen by you, that we are holy because of you, and that we are your beloved. Let us know our identity and dress accordingly. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.